0: Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Seavers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in our review of Stanley's War. It's late October of 1944, and Stanley has arrived at his installation, A-72, north of Paris. He and his guys have been flying not as much as they should as they prepare for their real war because the weather has been quite difficult, but they're getting ready for what's ahead. During my decade of work on the Silver King's War in preparation for the podcast series, I traveled to a wonderful air museum in Tucson, Arizona, This facility includes a substantial history and archive of the B-26. I met the museum's archivist and the son of the designer of the plane, the B-26. Glenn Martin had an aeronomic designer named Peyton Magruder. And one of his children was Marshall Magruder, who now lives in Arizona. Marshall met me at the museum that day, and we had a very good discussion about the history of his father's work for Glenn Martin on the B-26. The highlight of that very exciting day at the museum was receiving the entire record of my dad's unit throughout its war. The unit history allowed me to correlate his missions with dates and times and targets and outcomes. The Army Air Force's historians wrote monthly reports on the activities of each unit. And this report is from December of 1944, and it records my father's first mission. The paperwork reads, 597th Bombardment Squadron, parenthetical M, the 397th Bombardment Group, Army Air Forces Station A-72, 20 December 1944. Subject, historical report of the 597th Bombardment Squadron for the month of November nineteen forty four. Two, Historical Section 9 Bomber Division, APO 140, U.S. Army through the 397th Bombardment Group. Item 1. The squadron remained at A-72 near San Quentin. The flying of operational missions continued with emphasis on storage depots and defended areas, the latter being in direct support of ground forces. The number of missions flown was somewhat curtailed due to unfavorable weather conditions. And they were as follows. On 5 November, the target was Hamburg, Germany, an ordnance depot. The outcome was undetermined due to weather. But the crews were Wood, Braden, Gleiss, Anderson, Pemberton, Schwartzrock, Higgins, and Stoner. And the Silver King rode with Pemberton that day. The following day, November 6, 1944, the New York Times carried a small story about that mission with the title, Planes Strangely Jolted, U.S. Attack Flyers Bombing Nazi Arms Depot Report Phenomenon. From the United States Ninth Air Force Headquarters in France, November 5, through the Associated Press, it read, American marauders and havocs bombed a big ordnance depot at Hamburg today, and crews experienced a unique sensation, caused probably by unusual atmospheric conditions, but possibly, according to the flyers, by some new German secret weapon. All the planes returned safely, The pilots said their planes bounced up and down from the time they left the target until they crossed the German border back over France. None of them was able to explain the terrific jolts, and no explanation of the phenomenon was forthcoming from headquarters. The attackers bombed warehouses, ammunition dumps, stockpiles at Hamburg, 15 miles northeast of Saarbrücken without encountering Nazi fighters or flak. Of course, the Silver King couldn't write home about the specifics of his mission. He could say that his first mission was more than he could have imagined. It was a beautiful night, and they flew without encountering the enemy. The five nine historians recorded nine missions out of a seventy-two in November of nineteen forty-four. The first on four November, and the last on thirty November. On nineteen November, they flew morning and afternoon. The morning crew's target was at Maria Weller. A defended area. The crews included Lockard, Higgins, Spalding, Flowers, Levin, Reed, Schwartzwock, Whitmere, and Frank. And for the afternoon mission, which was Pier Mason's an ordnance depot, the crews were Gleiss, Benson, Spalding, Flowers, Levin, Oney, Cordell, Braden, and Frank. Item two on the historian's record four. December of 1944 were the awards and decorations granted to personnel as follows Soldiers' Medal General Orders 35 Headquarters of the 9th Bomber Division 15 November Distinguished Flying Cross General Orders 268 Headquarters 9th Air Force 24 November Oak Leaf Clusters Standing Order 23 Headquarters Bomber Division 9. November Item 3. No personnel were killed or wounded in battle during the month. Item 4. Six officers and four enlisted men received promotions. And finally, 5. The squadron was joined by six officers and 14 enlisted men. On 30. November, the strength was 101 officers and 355 enlisted men. Signed, William J. McCarran. 1st Lieutenant Air Corps, Assistant S-2 Officer. As I continued my research on the Silver King for the podcast, I read extensively about the war. As you know, as followers of the Silver King, we've discussed the writing of John Steinbeck because he wrote a book called Bombs Away, a novel about a bomber unit. Steinbeck wrote bombs away for the Office of War Information, but he wanted to work closer to the real war and applied to be an Air Force intelligence officer. His local draft board in California said no, and their refusal may have been based on suspicion that the author of The Grapes of Wrath was sufficiently communistic to be a security risk. Lamenting that he might never see the war, Steinbeck was offered a job of correspondent for the New York Herald Tribune. Steinbeck went to Europe and learned directly, of course, that every man has his war. And as a way to honor our hero, the Silver King, and his brothers-in-arms, I'm going to read a small portion of Steinbeck's writing. John Steinbeck wrote a book titled Once There Was a War, which was first published by Viking Press in the United States in 1958 and subsequently by Penguin Books in 1977. Steinbeck concludes his introduction with this paragraph. The pieces in this volume were written under pressure and intention. My first impulse on re-reading them was to correct, to change, to smooth out ragged sentences and remove repetitions. But their very raggedness is, it seems to me, a parcel of their immediacy. They are as real as the wicked witch and the good fairy, as true and tested and edited as any other myth. There was a war long ago, once upon a time. And once upon a time, Steinbeck wrote from a bomber station in England in July of 1943, a short piece entitled, Preparation for a Raid. In the barracks, a brilliant white light flashes on, jerking you out of sleep. A sharp voice says, All right, get out of it. Briefing at 3 o'clock, stand by at 4.20, better get out of it now. The crew struggles sleepily out of their bunks and into clothes. It is 2.30 a.m. There hasn't been much sleep for anyone. Outside, the daylight is beginning to come. The crew gropes its way through sleepiness and the semi-darkness to the guarded door, and each goes in as he is recognized by the guard. Inside, there are rows of benches in front of a large white screen, which fills one wall. Some of the crews are already seated. The lights go out, and from a projector, an aerial photograph is projected on the screen. It is remarkably clear. It shows streets and factories and a winding river and docks and submarine pens. An intelligence officer stands beside the screen, and he holds a long pointer in his hand. He begins without preliminary, quote. Here's where you are going, he says, and he names a German city. Now this squadron will come in from this direction, the pointer traces the road, making a black shadow on the screen. The pointer stops at three long, narrow buildings, side by side. This is your target. They make small engine parts here. Knock it out. He mentions times, and as he does, a sergeant marks the times on a blackboard. Stand by at such a time. Take off at such a time. You will be over your target at such a time, and you should be back here by such a time. It is all on the minute, 5.52 and 9.43. The incredible job of getting so many ships to a given point at a given time means almost split-second timing. The intelligence officer continues, and the next three sentences are cut by the censor. Good luck and good hunting. The lights flood on. The picture city disappears. A chaplain comes to the front of the room. All Catholics gather at the back of the room, he says. The crews struggle across the way to the mess hall and fill their plates and their cups, stewed fruit and scrambled eggs and bacon and cereal and coffee. The Mary Ruth's crew is almost gay. It is a reaction to the bad time they had the night before. All the tension is broken now, for there is work and flying to be done, not waiting. The tail gunner says, if anything should happen today, I want to go on record that I had prunes for breakfast. They eat hurriedly and then file out, washing their dishes and cups and soapy water, and then rinsing them in a big cauldron near the door. Dressing is a long and complicated business. The men strip to the skin. Next to their skins, they put on long, light, woolen underwear. Over that, they slip on what looks like long, light blue-colored underwear. But these are the heated suits, They come low on the ankles and far down on the wrists, and from the waist of these suits protrude electric plugs. The suit, between two layers of fabric, is threaded with electric wires, which will carry heat when the plug is connected to the heat outlet on the ship. Over the heated suit goes the brown coverall. Last come thick fleece-lined heated boots and gloves, which also have plugs for the heat unit. Next goes on the Mae West, the orange rubber life preserver, which can be inflated in a moment. Then comes the parachute with its heavy canvas straps over the shoulders and between the legs, and last the helmet with the throat speaker and the earphones attached. Plugged into the intercommunication system, the man can now communicate with the rest of the crew no matter what noise is going on about him. During the process, the men have got bigger and bigger as layer on layer of equipment is put on. They walk stiffly like artificial men. The lean waist gunner is now a little chubby. They dress very carefully, for an exposed place or a disconnected suit can cause a bad frostbite at 30,000 feet. It is dreadfully cold up there. It is daylight now, and a cold wind is blowing. The men go back to the armament room and pick up their guns. A truck is waiting for them. They stow the guns carefully on the floor and then stiffly hoist themselves in. The truck drives away along the deserted runway. It moves into a side runway. Now you can see the ships set here and there on the field. A little group of men is collected under the wings of each one. There she is, the ball turret man says. I wonder if they got her nose repaired. It was the Mary Ruth that got her nose smashed by a cartridge cases from a ship ahead. The truck draws up right under the nose of the great ship. The crew piles out, and each man lifts his gun down tenderly. They go into the ship. The guns must be mounted and carefully tested. Ammunition must be checked and the guns loaded. It all takes time. That's why the men were awakened so long before the takeoff time. A thousand things must be said before the takeoff. And before the Silver King and his men prepare for another takeoff from A 72, we have reached the end of this episode of the review of Stanley's War. And you are listening to the Silver King's War.